0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. It is a privilege this morning we're going to begin a brand new series for the next seven weeks uh, looking at different parables. Uh, How many of you are familiar with the parables in Scripture? Parables are sort of these earthly stories that have this heavenly meaning, and although many of them are related to the kingdom and God's specific work, one of the things I love about the parables is that they teach us various things about the character and the nature of God Himself. And as we grow in relationship with God, what is so critical to us is to understand His very nature and His character. And so we're going to dive in this morning. If you have a Bible, I trust you do. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter fifteen. We're going to begin here. And when I was thinking about this series and the stories that that are here in Scripture, um, I I think the parables. Number one, Jesus was an incredible storyteller. Wouldn't you just love to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him teach and instruct? All right, five of us would love to do it. What about the rest of us? Wouldn't you just love to sit? I mean, Jesus was an incredible teacher. And when He shared these parables, the neat thing, when I look at it, I think these are probably some of the most incredible stories that the majority of people never really understood. They're sort of like hidden treasures. And it reminded me of the story that came out just about three years ago of the, of the Filipino fisherman. And he was out, and his anchor was sort of locked in, and so he dove down, and and he dislodged his anchor from some rocks, and he discovered this giant clam that was attached to his anchor. And when he did that, he brought it up, and, and he found this giant object in this clam, which was somewhat rare, and it was such a neat old piece that he sort of kept it as a good luck charm. And he took it home, and for 10 years, he had this object that he found in a clam tucked away in his room. And because of a little fire at his house, he had to kind of empty it, and he had a cousin that worked for the city's tourism office. So he took this object to the tourism office for safekeeping while he was displaced from his home. They discovered this was the world's largest pearl. And for 10 years, he's had it tucked away, but it had an estimated value because it was about 75 pounds, had an estimated value of over $100 million that he had just tucked away as a lucky charm. (laughs) These hidden little treasures. So this morning, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And, And when I look at this, there's really three simple truths as Jesus begins to unpack this great story. Look with me in verse one, because the first thing we see here is, is a scandalous accusation. Verse one, now the tax collectors and sinners that's you and me, we're all drawing near. Now hang on to three key words here, near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious people who wanted nothing to do with these tax collectors and sinners. They grumbled, saying, this man receives, there's another great word, sinners, and eats with them. There's a difference between receiving and eating, because eating implied greater depth of fellowship and relationship. And so, Jesus, here's this scandalous accusation that is made by these religious people. One of the things I've discovered in my personal Bible study is that whenever Jesus does something incredible, somebody gets mad. It's true in Scripture, and it's true today. See, when God begins to stir people's hearts and when He begins to do something incredible, people get mad. And usually the people who are getting mad are the religious people. See, religion, I I, I define as man's best attempt to reach God. But what God offers us is personal relationship. Anything you do in hopes that God is somehow going to love you or accept you. Maybe you're here this morning because you think, well, I'm doing a good deed for God, that's religion. If you come and follow the Lord in baptism, that's religion apart from a personal relationship with Christ. If you take the Lord's Supper or communion and you do it in hopes that God's going to love you or accept you, that's religion. And the more religious we become, we miss the point of the depth of relationship that Jesus desires. What does He desire? He desires us to be near Him. He desires to receive us. He desires to eat or to have fellowship with us. And see, the more we begin to do that, the religious people get mad. So, there's this scandalous accusation that's taking place. Jesus has just spent A lot of time with the poor, with the crippled, with the hurt, with the blind, with the lame. And these people are being drawn more and more and more to Jesus because they realize they have a need. You see, the more we discover that we really have a need because of our sin, the more we desire to draw close to Jesus Christ. When we begin to get self-righteous and think that somehow we've got it all together and our life is wonderful… All of a sudden, this love relationship with Jesus becomes scandalous. So there was this growing gap between the religious elite and Jesus and His followers, the people who really desired this love, this grace, this mercy that was extended through Jesus Christ to lost people. And as that gap continued to grow, these religious people were looking for ways to trap Jesus Let me share a couple of verses with you. You can see them on the screen, just four four chapters earlier in Luke chapter 11. As he, speaking of Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. See, this gap is growing between the, the religious elite and Jesus and his followers, his message of grace and love and mercy. Now they're looking for a way to trap him. They're asking questions like, why do you associate with these kinds of people? I think every pastor that I've ever known, including myself, have been accused of hanging out with people that were not religious. You see, when we turn internally and we're so consumed with what's going on in here, sometimes we get offended by our leadership because they're doing what? They're doing the very thing that Jesus did. We're seeking after those that are lost, Those that are sinful, who know they're sinners, who are looking for hope, and and yet the religious elite are saying, no, 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 it's all about us. Come and take care of me. Come and care for my needs. And so this gap is growing. Luke chapter 5, verse 27, because I love what it says, these sinners, these outcasts in Israel, Jesus says, I've come to pursue them. I've come to chase after them, to give them hope. So he says this, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector. A man by the name of Levi sitting in the tax booth. Well, that was his job, right? And so he said to him, follow me. And so leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. So here he goes. He's going to eat with him, right? And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, sinners are these lost sheep. These are the ones who need a shepherd. And and the truth of Scripture is simply this, that God values sinful people. He loves sinful people. He accepts those that are uh, rejected by those that are religious. So there's this scandalous accusation, but then the parable is really about this saving pursuit— This saving pursuit of Jesus, look beginning in verse 3, so he, that's Jesus, told them this parable. Told who the parable? Told the ones making this accusation. These scribes, these Pharisees, these religious elite, Jesus looks at them and he tells them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, many scholars believe this entire chapter is is three aspects of the same message of, of salvation. But we're only looking at this little part right here. And as Jesus was addressing these scribes, these Pharisees, the religious elite, they would have known exactly the context of what Jesus was saying. Because, see, it was the responsibility of the shepherd to keep care of the sheep. Most of them didn't own the sheep, they were working for someone, and they were responsible for every life of every sheep. Genesis, Exodus, the book of Amos all tell us very specifically that shepherds would have had to sort of pay up for anything that they lost unless they could prove that it was killed by a prowler or a predator. And so sometimes shepherds would literally have to go retrieve bones or something of of sheep to prove that indeed a a predator got this, and and then they wouldn't have to pay. Otherwise, they knew it was money out of their pocket. So they clearly understood this idea of of a shepherd wanting to leave the, the 99 to go find that one that was lost. The 99, not that they were not important, they were vitally important. But that one that was lost, that that lost sheep was in danger. And so Jesus is speaking of those without salvation, those in need of salvation. If they're not with the shepherd, they are in great danger of what? Of an eternity separated from a God that loves them. So what does he do? He leaves the comfort of us who are safe and secure in Christ to pursue the one who's lost. Maybe you're lost this morning. Maybe you're religious this morning. Maybe, maybe you know all the right answers, but you've never come to this place of, of letting Jesus rejoice over you because he found you and in repentance you turned to him. You see, tend, sheep tend to go astray. <laughs> I've never been a shepherd, but I've been around sheep and I've talked to people who own sheep and have shepherded sheep, and they said sheep are very stupid. And so I'm like, boy, I can relate. I understand why God looks at me as a sheep, because I'm really stupid. And and sheep would literally, with their head down, they they would walk and they would just eat the green grass in front of them, sometimes to the point that they would fall off a cliff. They're just blindly, and they're led by shepherds. Psalm 23, a beautiful picture of what it means to shepherd stupid lost sheep to lead them to still waters, to to lead them to green pastures, to love them, to care for them, to nurture them, to guide them with a rod and a staff. And so, as Jesus uses this analogy, He he creates the picture that we're, we're all lost sheep. We're all sinners in need of a shepherd to pursue us and to rescue us. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, you can see it on the screen, says, all. What does the word all mean? It means everyone here, right? We're all in this category of all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, being Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all. Who is all? We are. Are you part of all? Yes, you are. I am part of all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in need of a savior. We all have this problem called sin. And what Jesus tells us right here is that Jesus is our answer. He is the answer to our sin problem. I love the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, look on the screen. It says he speaking of Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, who is God the Father, right? He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his, that's Jesus, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls." Folks, that's great news because Jesus pursued us, and there's two aspects to this salvation. God doing the seeking and the pursuing, and us being pursued and simply repenting and receiving. Jesus is doing all the pursuing. He's the one who's seeking. He's the one who is saving. It is all of God and not of us. So there's nothing we can do to earn this incredible gift of salvation. It's simply God pursuing us out of His love and His mercy. See, we don't come to God on our own terms. We don't come when we feel like we're ready. We come when the shepherd comes and finds us. And He is constantly in the process of pursuing us. No matter how far you run, he's always pursuing you. Let me share some verses. Jesus says here in in Luke, four chapters ahead of us, for the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus knew that was his job. That was the whole purpose. He was here to seek lost sinners, people like me, people like you, people like all. John chapter 6, verse 44, as Jesus is speaking, he says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. The word draw literally means to enable him. So as God is pursuing us, we don't come to him on our terms. We come when the Holy Spirit draws us and enables us. And you're here this morning, maybe you've never come to know Christ. I want you to know God is pursuing you. He's chasing you down. He's drawing you. He is enabling you to come to this place of repentance and forgiveness. John chapter 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's all about Jesus. He's doing the pursuing. And so that begs two questions with me. Why and what? <laughs> Why? Why would He do that? Why would God pursue lost people who are sinful? He is a holy, righteous God. And so on one hand, you have this holy, righteous God. On the other hand, you have me and you, all of us, like sheep who have gone astray. Why in the world would God pursue lost people? John chapter 3, a very familiar passage to us, beginning in verse 16, simply says this, what? For God so loved, what? The world. That He, what? What? He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But we have to look at the next verse to go with it. For God did not send His Son into the world to contend the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, God loves you. He loves you deeply. He loves you immensely. Why would He pursue lost people who are sinful? Because He loves you. But then I ask, what kind of love is that? What kind of love is that that loves the unlovable, that that has this scandalous accusation made against him? What kind of love is that? Well, what I want you to understand in this passage is that God, by His very nature, is love. You see, sometimes we look at God and all of His holiness and righteousness and say, boy, isn't God a loving, kind God? What we have to understand is God, in His very nature, is love. He's not simply expressing love to us as an attribute because it's part of who He is. Matter of fact, I love this picture. If you would just kind of bear with me for a moment. What kind of love is this? It's the kind of love that God demonstrated from the very beginning of creation. Let me take you back to Sunday School 101. God created two human beings and put them in a garden. His name was... Adam, very good, very good, one for one. Her name was Eve. Very good, y'all doing awesome. Adam and Eve, all through the first chapter, the second chapter, they're doing great, but we're three chapters into the Bible, all of a sudden they blow it. Don't they? The fall of all mankind hinges on Adam and Eve in chapter 3, and I love what it says in verse 6, it says, when the woman saw… Saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the isle and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took. Took. She took for herself. Adam took for himself. When we look at the word took, took introduces sin. Sin introduces fearful hiding and separation from God. See, whenever we take something for ourselves apart from the nature and character of God, it's sin. People go, well, what is sin? And we immediately think of acts. We think of things that we do or don't do. Listen, sin very easily defined as anything contrary to the nature and character of God. So when Adam and Eve took of the, of the tree, took, introduced sin. The Bible tells, says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Death literally means separation. So when they took it introduced sin, sin introduced fearful hiding and separation from God. I don't know about you, but when I have unconfessed sin in my life, the last place I want to be is in the presence of God and God's people. I've watched for years as people fall away from church life, and I guarantee it's because there's unconfessed sin in their life. There's not authenticity in relationship and small group life, and they're not in the discipleship role where someone is nurturing and caring for them and helping them. To work through that sin. Maybe that's you this morning. But but what happened? What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They went and hid, didn't they? What did Jesus do? What did God do? He pursued them. I love it. Down in verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, it tells you that heaven's going to be a cool place. Not, not just incredible cool. It's going to be cool. It's very Midwestern, right? None of this hot heat kind of stuff. I, I believe God's a Midwestern guy all the way, man, you know, because it was the cool of the day. And, and look what it says here in verse 8. It says, and they hid from the Lord. So here's God realizing that there was sin and separation because Adam and Eve took, introduced fearful hiding and separation. What did God do? He pursued them. He wasn't going to let them simply go and hide. And when he found them, because he asked, he says, where are you? He knew where they were. What was he wanting from them? He was wanting confession and repentance. He pursued them, and and he was simply seeking restoration of fellowship and relationship. And what did he do? The Scripture goes on to tell us that he, he covered them. He took the blood of an innocent animal, and he shed that blood, and he covered them. He covered their sin. He covered their nakedness. He brought them back into right relationship. Hang on to this phrase with me, would you? From the very beginning, the very first sin until right now, the blood of the innocent has always been shed for the sin of the guilty. Adam and Eve sinned, caused separation from God, fearful hiding. What did God do? He pursued them. He pursued them because his very nature and character is love. Jesus came and and he said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come to seek Dave because he's lost and he needs a hero. He needs someone to shed innocent blood to cover his sin. And Jesus said, I'm going to do that for Dave. And I'm going to do that for you because I love you so much. I am in hot pursuit of you right now so that you would know my love, that you would know my grace, that you would know my mercy. You see, I want you to understand this, that in 1 John 4, 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's part of His very nature. It is, in essence, His character. And I want you to know that God would love, even if there were no sinners, God would love because love is part of His very being. It's who He is. God has two kinds of attributes, those that He possesses of Himself. Those are called His intrinsic attributes. Then he has what I refer to as relative attributes. In other words, because of his intrinsic qualities and characteristics, how does he relate to his creation? So when we look at the very nature of God, what do we know? We know that by nature, God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. God in his very nature is truth. But when he relates to man, God's truth becomes his faithfulness and his care. God in His very nature is holy, and when He relates that, that intrinsic quality to mankind, it becomes justice. Well, love is one of God's intrinsic attributes. It's who He is. It's His very nature and character. But when His love is related to sinners, it becomes grace and mercy. See, because, because He is love, He looks at us and, and He extends His grace and mercy. Mercy is, is simply that He does not give us what we do deserve which is death and eternal separation. Grace simply says that he gives me what I don't deserve, which is a a fellowship and a relationship with him and an eternity in relationship with him. Grace and mercy is simply him living out this intrinsic attribute of his love. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, these words, listen and look closely, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, right, separated, fearful hiding, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, there it is, you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated, uh, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might know or show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift Of God, not a result of works or religion, so that no one can boast. You see, it's shocking to many people to realize we're not saved by God's love. We're saved by His mercy and His grace. God, in His very nature, is love, but He demonstrates that and, in relative terms, lives it out with us by demonstrating grace and mercy. Because of His mercy, He doesn't give me what I truly deserve. But because of his grace, he gives me the things that I don't deserve. All of this is made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. We've sung about it. We've looked at Scripture. We've talked about it. And here it's lived out for us. And Jesus tells this simple little story of how he left the 99 to go find that one. Maybe you're that one this morning. Maybe you're sitting here never having come to know, to know Jesus Christ. And I want you to know he is that loving shepherd that walked away from those that are safe and secure, and he's pursuing you. He's chasing you down this morning. And you say, Pastor Dave, how do you know he's chasing me down? Because you're here. You're here, and you are hearing the truth of his love conveyed to you right now in this moment. He is pursuing you with love, with grace, with mercy. And what does he want to do? Well, we see a scandalous accusation. We see this saving pursuit, but I love where this story sort of just culminates and crescendos in songs of rejoicing. Look with me, verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It doesn't mean that they don't need it. It simply means they're not willing. That's exactly. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the religious elite. It's not that they don't need salvation. They simply think in their heart they don't need it. Absolutely. They look at the sinful people. They look at the tax collectors and all those other people. Oh, they need it, but I'm really good. Some of you are sitting here this morning saying, boy, I don't need it because I'm really pretty good, but I sure am praying for that guy next to me. Boy, I sure am praying for that person in front of me. Boy, I sure am praying for my neighbor, my coworker, because, boy, they really need it. Can I just tell you we all need it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, no matter how good we think we are, we fall short. And Jesus is simply saying, you know what? There's rejoicing over one who comes to repentance. There's no rejoicing over 99 who don't think they need repentance. Why do you think you walk in so many churches across America especially, and there's no rejoicing? Because it's full of religious elitists who've separated themselves from a lost and dying culture. There's no joy. There's no rejoicing. I want to be in a place where heaven is rejoicing. Am I alone? I want to be in a place where heaven is rejoicing. Are you with me? I want want people to walk in this place on behalf of Jesus Christ, carrying lost sheep to the throne of grace, who've given their heart and life to Jesus Christ to the point that we are constantly erupting with joy. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean because a a sheep kind of wandered off. Listen, I wander. Anybody else wander? I've known Jesus Christ. I've been walking with Jesus Christ probably longer than many, not all, but some of you are kind of like me. Uh, I've been walking with Jesus for quite a long time, and in that process, I've wandered. And no matter how far I wander, Jesus is simply one turn away. It doesn't matter how far I wander away from His love and His mercy and His grace, it doesn't matter how far I go, He's always one turn away. I've run some pretty far… Not, not a, I'm not a runner, by the way, but spiritually I've run a long way from Christ. But every single time I turn and He's right there. He is constantly in hot pursuit of me, restoring my right relationship. 1 John 1, 9, if we, if I confess my sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Listen, I don't care how far you think you've run from God. I want you to know this morning, he is in hot pursuit of you. He is right there. He is one simple turn away. All we have to do is acknowledge our sin and confess that to Christ. And then he's willing just to pick us up, right? Accept this free gift of salvation, he's going to pick us up. The scripture Jesus, I love the way he says, puts him on his shoulders, and I'm going to take you back home. And all along the way, I'm going to be singing. Whether you can carry a tune or not, there's, there's songs of rejoicing that are beautiful. We had this quick conversation in the lobby this morning. My dad loved to sing. I didn't say he could sing, but he loved to sing. And he also loved to yodel. This is the kind of house I grew up in. Dad loved to sing songs of rejoicing. Why? Because he, his testimony simply went this. In September 1957, this poor man cried, and God heard him and saved him out of all of his sorrow. And every day of his life, he woke up with a song in his heart of saying, I have been redeemed, I have been forgiven, I was the lost sheep who God pursued out of his love and his mercy and his grace, and I can't believe that he saved me. And every day, he woke up with a song of rejoicing. Folks, that needs to be us every day walking in fellowship with the Savior. Do you want to rejoice? Do you want to be rejoiced over? Do you want Jesus to sing songs of rejoicing over you? Do you want all of heaven to rejoice over you? You come to that place of confession and repentance, saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you are pursuing me because you are love. You've extended your grace and your mercy to me. And, God, the best way I know how, I simply surrender. Pick me up. Forgive me, carry me back, sing songs of rejoicing over me.